0: Welcome to this week's podcast, Weekly Insights podcast. Great to have you all listening. And I'm delighted that today we've been joined by Philippe Lespinard, again, to give us, uh, Philippe, your views uh, on the wonderful world uh, of fixed income. So, again, thank you very much indeed uh, for being here. Um, Just by way of... Providing context, uh, clearly we've had a reasonably benign environment for risk assets just recently. And as I speak on Tuesday morning, uh, European markets uh, are up, equity markets are up, on the expectation of uh, dovish rhetoric to come out of the ECB. And we'll get into that in a moment. Um, More prosaically, if I look back at last week's data, uh, we had US headline CPI rising by 1.8%. Uh, in May, which was down from the recorded number in April of 2%. Uh, and I think that represented almost the fourth consecutive month um, of core CPI, growing only by about 0.1% month on month. And so again, that's quite informative for how we think about how the Fed may be reacting. Uh, the Eurozone uh, data continues to come out weak, uh, week. And once more, um, part of the epicenter uh, for the manufacturing part of the economy in particular is the auto sector uh, where April car production was down at 4.1 percent uh, against the previous monthly figure which then in aggregate dragged manufacturing down by 0.8 percent uh, so the the dichotomy between manufacturing and consumption uh, those two parts of the economy we're definitely going to come back to um, and then lastly again I think Azad would be cross with me if I didn't mention this Um, UK GDP um, was recorded as going down by 0.4% month on month in April, um, which was the worst decline since, wait for it, March 2016, um, and below expectations. And I think very firmly um, echoed this idea that there's been a lot of inventory building, uh, which is what Azad's been saying, a lot of inventory building in the run up uh, to the projected uh, departure from the EU, which of course hasn't happened. Um, and therefore, we've seen uh, the aftermath in terms of this contraction. So um, again, a pretty lackluster uh, data set. Uh, and Philippe, to come to you, um, recession is the sort of, once again, the rotch word, um, which is plaguing markets. Uh, and we were chatting beforehand and to, to put numbers on it. I don't know, the US 10-year uh, peaked at about 3.1 from memory. Uh, and now, as we speak, it's uh, 2.057-ish. Um, a big, big move. Um, and so Mr. Market has gone from being quite optimistic about growth uh, to now really quite pessimistic, um, and obviously, some of the data I've just been talking about, like I said. So what's really going on? What lens should we have on whether there's likely to be
1: a recession in the US on a 12-month view or not? So the, the fears of recession are really driven by the industrial sector, where um, you'll recall that you know we we had obviously uh, perceived that there was a, a slowdown in the industrial sector across a range of industries. I mean, autos the auto sector is one of them. Uh, tech is another, um, and and even housing for a while was soft. Um, and so there's, there's clearly been a combination of, of factors which led to. Industrial sector generally, and that's a global phenomenon, slowing down uh, very fast and is now clearly in recession on its own terms. What has not gone into recession is the service sector, which is the biggest part of the economy, um, and, uh, and of course the consumption side, uh, which is buoyed by good uh, wage gains. Uh, the real disposable you know, real incomes generally are pretty good right yes. now. and that's true also in Europe. Uh, disposable wage gains in Europe are, are a 20-year high. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, there is definitely more income now being generated and spent. Uh, in the economy. And yet the manufacturing cycle is, is very, very weak. So are we, are we
0: wrong to be obsessed with the manufacturing cycle? What, in terms of how economic evolution has gone, what's been the uh, historic transmission mechanism between manufacturing to then consumption? And, and are there any reasons to think that that may be different
1: now? It's certainly changed. I mean, manufacturing is now a smaller part of the uh, of the GDP of economy. Uh, it's between the low teens, uh, 10, 12, 13 percent in in most countries. It's the high teens in Germany. Um, obviously, it's it's seen as a strength for Germany, but it's now as as it's the weakest sector is now dragging Germany down. Um, it, th- the link between that and the rest of the economy is always that, first of all, manufacturing uh, had a lot of jobs and well-paid jobs. And as you lose jobs and well-paid jobs, you lose incomes and right. therefore uh, consumption. But the denominator now is getting smaller. Yes, and it's, it's getting smaller. But th- it's also the case that manufacturing uh, is actually uh, employs a lot of professional services, uh, which themselves are affected by a manufacturing slowdown. So the second round effect can be quite, quite pronounced. And lastly, it's the most cyclical part of the economy. A lot of services aren't very cyclical right think of health and healthcare and government education and so on they're all quite stable um so it is very much the uh, the part of the economy that has the biggest and the, the the most pronounced cycles so in that sense i think what i'm hearing you say is that we
0: should expect that level of volatility but clearly we're now seeing it on the on the downturn there are secondary effects um but we can still be reassured by the real disposable income growth reassured in the sense of providing a
1: how can I put it plank to underlying low growth but still low growth. Yes so so that's why you know when people talk about recessions, uh, they, they look at those in these early indicators but then you uh, you put it back into the context of you know the low teens component part of the economy. the chances of having a recession uh, while the rest is doing okay are is very low. but you will get obviously we will have subtrend growth. And that's bad news uh, particularly of the economies that have has still have a big output gap uh, following the the great financial crisis not the case for the us um so the us is a different cyclical position and structural position but of course it's very worrying for a place like europe where the, the scars of the the financial crisis is still evident so of course that output cap gets
0: crystallized in terms of inflation yes. um, and that of course is the driver behind how uh, central banks may react so um i i uh, read out some inflation stats uh, earlier on the call. What's your perspective on inflation and how we should see that as
1: uh, as perhaps being a prompt to central banks? Well, so the the, the downgrade of inflation expectations, uh, which has accelerated in the last few weeks, um, is what has surprised uh, us, but also the market generally, and clearly is now a major concern amongst the central banks. Uh, if particularly you in the States, because again,
0: given what you were saying, that that's where the output gap because the states has had the most normal in inverted commas uh, elongated but normal recovery from the financial crisis, yeah. and and full yet employment, e- yeah. right, and completely full employment as you say, and yet inflation is in inverted commas
1: disappointing. Yeah, so clearly there is a there is something going on in the price formation mechanism uh, that economists uh, do not understand well. Um, you know, when if you if you told us in advance that wages would run at three three and a half percent. That you'd be at less than four percent unemployment, um, y- you would. It would have been very hard to imagine that the CPI would be core CPI, not even in uh, taking uh, uh, energy and food into account, uh, would be in the low, you know, below one and a half um, or one point one, as the case in uh, in Europe. And again, in Europe, wages are also growing now by two and a half, three percent. So. You know, it is, in our normal models, you would have never expected CPI to be so weak. So there's something going on in price formation, whether it's digitization, uh, new models, and, and so on, which is not well understood and surprising everybody, uh, and, and including policymakers and, and concerning policy very much. Concerning them, but
0: is there a potential silver lining that maybe productivity is improving?
1: It could be. The productivity statistics are not so good. Um, Partly, uh, we should remind ourselves that um, manufacturing, the reason manufacturing is so small as a component of the economy is because productivity gains in manufacturing being so so high for so long, that in a way, uh, manufacturing produces a lot more goods now with a lot less resources than it used to and lost less labor. Um, While the productivity in services is appalling, it's actually in some cases either flat or sometimes even negative. So, and while services are now occupy a larger p- percent of p- portion of the economy so it seems unlikely that that w- that would just be the the very strong productivity just in manufacturing which is causing a depressed price level when people consume more haircuts and restaurants and so on right. than they consume TVs for example uh,
0: equally though one of the things in time is that we're going to start to see that same technology impact service sectors as different kinds of white-collar jobs get replaced by AI etc but that's Probably a topic <laughs> for another day. Um, so, therefore, to come back to um, uh, the lower-than-expected inflation, um, what do you think is going on um, in the, in the minds of the Fed right now?
1: Well, the Fed, the Fed have the same problem as all central banks uh, do, uh, except that their starting position is very different, uh, much more favourable in a way. Um, the, the general concern in the central banker's uh, mind is that deflation is the enemy to fight at all costs, and. Reason why deflation, as in negative inflation, is is the enemy. Japan kind of haunts everybody. Exactly. um, Is is that you know the debts that are that have accumulated um, before the financial crisis and then even more since um, are nominal obligations, and if your if your income is depressed by by negative price uh, price developments, then then you can never repay those debts, and they balloon out of control. So everybody has this eye on Japan, you know, very slow growth, deflation, or lack of inflation, and then ever increasing debt and no prospect of repaying it. And they're just thinking this is the the, the, the situation that we have to avoid at all costs. So so we've had quantitative easing, we've had all these things to try to push the price price level up. We've had uh, the Fed openly discussing having a price target, even as opposed to just a inflation target. Um, and yet they're missing on all counts. Um, now, clearly, they also see the global, uh, inf- uh, the global production su- cycle, the global industrial cycle, slowing down. And they're, they're obviously thinking, look, you know, we can afford to cut rates. There's no inflation. It's actually lower than below target. So the market's now are egging them on and say, well, OK, well, if, you, if there's no risk to cutting rates, why do you cut? Make a so-called insurance cut against the recession. Hmm. And they've done that in the past but they've always done it in a in the, in a in the circumstance where they were there was no outside interference such as mr trump openly <laughs> criticizing them right and being extremely vocal and about they how they would be seen
0: to be doing it for you know yeah. under no political pressure whatsoever
1: yeah well you know of, of course credibility in central banking is everything because yeah. the credibility of the currency the, the the value of the currency is your is your is within your gift so Already, for the Fed to within six months to have gone to it the economy is doing great in December. To six months later, we're worried about a recession. That in itself is quite, uh, quite a questionable, you know, ch- uh, change of tone. Uh, of course, the markets have since then, you know, pushed them around. And then to to now think, okay, well now they're not just. A bit volatile in their views, and they've got their views wrong, but they're now being you know, beaten up by the president. Yeah. <laughs> and they're basically uh, subject to political pressure. That would really not be a great move for them. So they clearly have both of these things in their mind at the time when, frankly, the market's saying, look, you will need to cut rates. The market's now pricing three cuts um, uh, before the end of the year the first one in July. Um, but we're now one month ahead of that. And frankly, the question is, well, if you know you need an insurance rate cut, why not do it now? I mean, What's the potential cost, other than the appearance that you're doing it Being for, forced by the yeah. market, or forced by the worst still, by the president. Yeah, that your hand is weak, basically. But you're, but I think the meeting's
0: tomorrow, right? Or the announcement yeah, yeah. comes well, tomorrow. Well, know tomorrow night. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I think what I'm hearing you say is that you expect sort of um, dovish rhetoric, but the oh, move definitely. probably not until
1: um, July. Yeah, I mean, look, the responsible thing for them to do would be not to cut now, but to to say, look, if it if it, if needed, we'll do whatever it takes to pre- prevent a recession. Um, and it's not because because you know I, I used to be uh, a little bit vocal about you know you can't declare recessions illegal; they just happen. Um, the point is, there's no inflation, so why not cut rates? Right. Because the only reason you'd have a recession if you had excesses somewhere else, and there there are none according to that measure. Um, so. The cost of an early cut would just be the appearance. It's just that of of credibility of being weak. Point. Yep. Yeah, no, I get
0: that. Now, of course, um, the U.S. Uh, is, you know, the happy position of having raised rates uh, 200 basis points uh, in this particular cycle uh, from the low, and of course, nearing the end of Q.T., uh, having, you know, um, reversed uh, f- formerly Q.E. Let's come here to the eurozone and Mario Draghi's sort of last few days. Um, He's in a very, di- very
1: different position. Um, what, what does the ECB do? Well, they, they, they in addition to being a, in the wrong starting position uh, with it's rates, the old Irish and thing of how
0: do you get from there to here? Well, I wouldn't start from here, but they do. So you uh, wouldn't that's start it. from here.
1: They have an additional uh, burden uh, in their decision making: is that the European banking system is incredibly weak, and you have some very, very large banks, uh, Deutsche, uh, UniCredit, and so on, SocGen and so on, whose stock prices are making new lows every day. Um, And and they're also the supervisor of the banking system, let's just not forget. So they they know it by cutting rates, they've already told us that, but cutting rates is a tax on banks, right? So you're gonna tax banks at their weakest at the point where they are really on on their back. Um, So they have this uh, this balance uh, of interest to keep. Um, They they might have some tools, tiering of interest rates and so on to introduce, but they haven't done that. It's another set of policy tools that they need to develop and, 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 and pass through their board. Um, And at the same time, we know that they're ending QE. They're still easing, but they're easing less and less, and it's supposed to end by the time Mario Draghi steps down in October. or by September, they'll have finished the program. So what could they do? Um, They could say the least costly option would be to prolong QE, keep buying government bonds. They'll have quota issues because they'll eventually they own more. I was, more was going to say they own uh, more and more of the stock. They'll own they'll own more and more of the particularly the German stock of that, which yeah. itself is shrinking now. So yeah. uh, the others are growing, but Germany is shrinking. So in relative proportion, they'll bust. They'll have to bust the balance of how much of German they, they own versus the others. Well, and with with associated quality connotations. Yeah quality connotations and of course uh, and, and you know they, there's a prohibition against them funding deficits uh, you know way right. again in their bylaws so uh, in, their, in their statutes so that it's it's incredibly fraught with difficulty to, to increase those quotas uh, while leaving the German market aside and the German market shrinking and the liquidity of its shrinking even faster so it's causing, um, and we see now some, some some you know people who'd now gone on to France now get getting France in their zero rates again, or the, the ten years about ten basis points, so it's within touching distance of zero. And then the French buyer is now running out of options, having to buy Italian debt. Now, if you think I- if you think a recession is bad for Europe, it's even worse for Italy because Italy has a large debt, and yeah. therefore this whole combination of low nominal growth, uh, i.e., low inflation low real growth, is the kiss of death for Italy. Plus, they have a government who's. You know, making trouble as well. So, and yet people are forced to buy Italy because they're running out of options. So it's a very, you know, th- frankly, they don't have. It's like threading ne- a needle. They have very, very few options. And frankly, th- as I see it, they might do a very small rate cut, but that's just a very symbolic one, because it of the sounds p- like they may well just do a little
0: bit of all, right? As in a little bit more QE, extending the program, and a very small symbolic rate cut, and just find other ways in which they can. You know, ease credit
1: conditions. Yeah, and 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 right now, by you know by by, you know, getting get putting pushing banks to be weaker and weaker, they're actually destroying credit well. cr- credit creation. So, to restart credit creation, you need those TLTROS, the, the targeted um, LTROS, that, that's um, what I mean, yeah. which are essentially free money for banks uh, who can then go on and do and make right. new lending. So targeted support for the banks, rather than a kind of macro type statement. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so, Philippe, in, in we haven't talked about currencies against that backdrop. Um, uh, you know, given the relative strength that we've been highlighting on the call of where the U.S. is relative, for example, to the eurozone, does that
1: mean that the dollar remains the kind of default strong currency? Well, it is, but it, but you said it; it's default. I mean, yeah. it's you know our own view is that frankly we were getting to the end of the dollar bull move. And yet, to generalize. And yet yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yet, um, and yet, you know, clearly the Bank of Japan's. You know, fighting tooth and nail to prevent <laughs> the yen <laughs> from appreciating. We know that the... Uh, Same as it never was. Th- we know that the People's Bank of China is very nervous about the, the Iran going through the, the seven barrier and, and, and... Well, they don't want to rock the boat right now. They, right exactly. Now. It'll be politically uh, really tricky with, with uh, the, the Trump administration. So they don't want their currency weakened even though... They Ideally, they do. It. Yes, yeah. And uh, the last thing the ECB wants is the euro to strengthen because that makes... Uh, of course European inflation even lower um, and and threatens their target even more so there are really no good options (laughs) uh, when you look at the currency world Um, and uh, The only thing I would say is that by the Fed engaging on a tight on an easing cycle and and easing their policy or at least indicating a downward move it frees up a lot of emerging market central banks to pursue the right policy for them as opposed to have to fight off uh, rate increases by the by the Fed and the stronger dollar so there is a silver lining for emerging markets that the yeah. pressure from the rising dollar will ease on them. Yeah. Uh, particularly lower, lower, lower U.S. rates are great for emerging markets. That's so that's absolutely, and we've we've source. obviously been sending that message out um, all year.
0: Um, uh, just lastly, in terms of positioning, um, I think you had had a kind of tactical uh, long rates on, given what's been going on, and clearly that's you know protected portfolios. Um, given what you were said right at the start of the call, in terms of the consumer side and the underlying strength, are you tempted to uh, reverse a bit of that now, given how far uh, treasuries have rallied?
1: Yes, well, our listeners will remember that we've been trying to fight the, <laughs> the downward move in rates for a while, um, and you could say, well, why have you, uh, why have you turned, uh, <laughs> why have you turned and suddenly gone long? Um, well, we we went long because we thought. Initially, the, the very short the, the, the cycle, the industrial cycle, would be short lived, and eventually uh, the the service sector, the consumption, uh, the consuming consumer sector, and so on, would would cause you know people to be reassured that we were not going into recession. But the industrial slowdown is prolonging itself; it's becoming more global; it's going across several sectors, and so on. So our protection was to say, well, in case we're wrong, we'll buy rates, and so we've been long as a protection mechanism. Clearly, you know, pretty much the downside scenario is now in the price. Right. And so it won't be long uh, you know, unless Meantime unless the level we hear of euphoria continues to exist in equities. <laughs> yeah, well our equity colleagues obviously live on a different
0: planet from the Well from they the bond investors and equity investors to as ever last, the optimist versus the pessimist.
1: Exactly. But but I, I would say, you know, frankly, all the bad news are pretty much in the price now right. and the reaction function of the central banks to those bad news is also getting to be in the price. So it won't be long until we probably turn around and say, Okay, it's time to short rates again. Great. Well, Philippe,
0: I think we're out of time, but that was very helpful. Thank you so much. Just a few quick takeaways. I think, first of all, you're highlighting the importance of disaggregating um, economic news in terms of the manufacturing sector um, and the manufacturing cycle, indeed, uh, where uh, it's in the nature of the beast uh, to have more volatility. And yes, we are very concerned about uh, that cycle. And obviously, there are some economies that are more at the epicenter of that than others. Uh, Germany comes to mind. Um, But that the underlying strength of the consumer uh, gives us um, comfort that there's a flaw uh, to to growth, um, which may mean that the market uh, in the short term, therefore, has become overly pessimistic uh, when it comes to the rates market. And hence what you've just been saying uh, in terms of maybe tactically uh, once more going short rates, given how far they've come. Uh, Secondly, from a currency perspective, uh, the dollar continues to be by default uh, the sort of winner amongst losers, uh, but because of the pros- prospects for dollar rates uh, to come down, uh, that continues to be a prospective tonic uh, for emerging markets uh, and emerging market uh, debt. Um, and that finally, as far as uh, China is concerned, um, that the B will remain in focus, uh, but because the Chinese authorities don't want to rock the boat unduly uh, in relation Uh, to having a a weaker currency inflaming President Trump's ire in terms of trade negotiations, that relative stability at this point uh, is still all good for. Uh, So with that, Philippe, thank you again hugely. Much appreciate your time. And everybody, that concludes this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening.